Welcome to the Unabridged Podcast. I'm Ashley. And this is Jen. Join us for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content to grow your TBR. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more about online book discussions and upcoming events. Find us on Patreon for extra unabridged content. Join us on Instagram and Facebook at Unabridged Pod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the Unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 240. Today is our October Book Club episode, and we are talking about Tiffany D. Jackson's The Weight of Blood. Before we get started, I want to remind you that we have been reviving our Patreon this season. Every month, we release an extra episode on Patreon. So if you want a little more unabridged content, you can head over to patreon.com slash unabridgedpod to subscribe. All right, well, we are going to start with our bookish check-in. Ashley, what are you reading? So I am excited to share. I just started this one. This is Graham Simpson's The Rosie Effect. Longtime listeners might remember that we read The Rosie Project. I don't know when, but it's oh been a gosh. long time ago. It has been a very long time. <laughs> it, was in the, it was in the early days of the podcast. So that story was very much about Don, who is someone who had decided that he wanted to acquire a wife and went through a very systematic approach that involved a lot of checklists and things like that. And in that one, ultimately, he meets Rosie and his plans go awry. And so this is the second in that series. And in this one, Rosie and Don are in New York City. So they're both Australian. They're living in New York. And he's working at Columbia. And she is a grad student doing some pretty intensive um, graduate work. And early, early, early on in the book, you discover that Rosie is pregnant. And Don likes to have a very clear plan. He has neurodivergent thinking, and so a lot of the book is very much about the way that he thinks, and that's part of what I love about the story. I love that in the first one. I love that in this one. It's just he analyzes everything in a sort of like pros and cons kind of way, and every event that happens, he'll think through like all of the steps to manage the event or anything like that. And so this was a bump in his life plan. And it wasn't that he thought they would never have a child, but he did not think that it was going to be coming his way anytime soon. And like I said, that's right at the beginning. And the other interesting thing that happens right at the beginning is that Jean, who is Don's best friend, but who is also Rosie's advisor for her dissertation and has a very contentious relationship with Rosie, he has been unfaithful to his wife yet again, and she has kicked him out. So he has nowhere to go and winds up trying to come and live with them, which Don is withholding from Rosie because he doesn't want to cause problems. Also, as soon as he finds out that she's pregnant, his primary goal becomes to not cause her any stress because we know that cortisol for the baby is really harmful for the fetus. And so he becomes really obsessed with not having any any stress for Rosie, which, as you might imagine, given all these circumstances, it requires a lot of maneuvering on his part to try to reduce her stress. And so 
right away, he winds up in some hilarious, outlandish, and also kind of terrible circumstances, all of which are largely because he is trying to help. He he adores Rosie. He is, you know, ultimately excited about them being parents, but he has made it his objective to help her have things easy. And of course, that is hard to manage. And so so I'm only a little ways in, but I'm loving it so far. And so that's Graham Simpson's The Rosie Effect, which is book two in the series. And I love that series. As you were talking, all of the warm feelings that I had about the first book were coming back. And I had forgotten so many details. I just really remember the way that first one made me feel. Yeah, it makes me want to pick this one up. Yes, I love it. It it just feels really good and it's really sweet. And I also, like I said, I I love the way that we can see Dawn's intentions. And I think that's something that I just think interesting in books is like sometimes authors focus on what people do. But this is definitely one where we see exactly why he does what he does. And I really appreciate that because I think that it's fun and interesting to see that introspection that goes into the actions that the characters take. And I think we see a lot of that here. Jen, what about you? What are you reading? So I am reading Tia Miles's All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley's Sack, A Black Family Keepsake. And this is such a fascinating read. It, it won the National Book Award the year it was published. And it is nonfiction, as the title probably clues you in. So this book centers on this family artifact. And it is a, a sack, like a sack made of cloth. But on it is sewn. It's embroidered. My great-grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It held a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair. Told her it be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother. Ruth Middleton, 1921. And so Miles takes this small family keepsake and investigates the story that is told in that embroidery. And she's really focusing on Ruth, who embroidered the statement, and then goes back to try to find the history of Rose and of her daughter, Ashley. And of course, it the records kept on enslaved people are sketchy at best. And when they are there, they're not focused on them as people, but as property. And so a lot of the history that Miles is sharing is she'll say other people at the time reported this. So she's really drawing a history of the United States with this as sort of this representative artifact through which we can access all of these stories. But she does believe that she found where Rose was, the person who owned Rose and Ashley, the plantation where they live together. And then I've just gotten to the part where they find in the records that Ashley was sold. And so it is moving. It is really fascinating because it's talking about this history and the way that textiles can be this important representation that often we discount their permanence and their importance, but how important they are. I wouldn't say it's an easy read, but it is the kind of prose, the kind of nonfiction that draws you in because the story of this family is so interesting and it's almost this mystery that she is trying to research. Yeah, so it's really, really interesting. 
And that is, again, all that she carried, the journey of Ashley Sack, a black family keepsake by Tia Miles. Wow. That sounds really fascinating. So, yeah, the Sack is actually at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. And so that is where Miles has gone to start the research. But it did belong, like they have the story of when it was handed over to this other museum who then has loaned it out to the Smithsonian. So even the history of how it came to Miles's attention is really, really interesting. All right. Well, we are going to jump over to our book club pick. I'm, I'll read a brief synopsis and we'll get started. In this retelling of Stephen King's Carrie, Tiffany D. Jackson crafts her multi-genre horror story around Madison Washington. Maddie is a black girl who, at the insistence of her abusive father, has passed for white for her entire life. She's been bullied throughout school, and the bullying intensifies when an unexpected rainstorm reveals the truth about her race. As the truth unfolds, Maddie's life and the life of the town changes irrevocably. All right, Ashley, what did you think overall of The Weight of Blood? Oh, my gosh. I thought this was phenomenal. I really was captivated by the story of Maddie and horrified by so much of what unfolds. But I also felt like, I'm sure we'll dig into this, but this one has... So it is very multi-genre and it has so many different angles on the story. And I just thought all of that was fascinating and really well woven. And so there's this podcast, we get all these news clips, we hear interviews with specific people who talked about the event after it was over. And all of that I was just wowed by. I also thought she did a remarkable job of showing the ever-presence of racism in today's society. And she said it in a town where it's extreme, but she shows how those components are so woven into American society in general and then hones in on how that affects this one group of people. And so I just thought all of that was really well done. I thought it was brilliant. What about you, Jen? Yeah. What's your overall impression? Yeah, same. So I'll put a plug in here for our Patreon episode coming up, which is about my trip to the National Book Festival, where, where I heard Tiffany D. Jackson talking a little bit about this book, which is what really made me want to read it. And I love Stephen King's Carrie. In that book, so King, in his book on writing, talks about the inspiration for Carrie, which is two girls at his school who were stricken by poverty and experienced the same kind of bullying that you see in Carrie and that Jackson takes, you know, to such great effect. And he just talks about wanting to bring those girls in the composite of Carrie to life to illuminate this issue and, of course, make it personal. And so I think it's so brilliant That Jackson takes that same thing, that same idea that you're going to take someone it feels like you know and illuminate the pain that they experience. I mean, I think she has such an empathetic portrayal of Maddie. And I think making that switch from it really being a focus on poverty to it being a focus on race is so timely. And I think it worked so well. I kept there were all of these notes that she hits that are in the original Carrie. And yet, 
she adds so much about the way we shape stories and the stories we tell each other and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. I think the addition of some of these perspectives really added some nuance and some layers to what could have been a very straightforward narrative. And I think you can do that. You can read it just for the plot. But then you see as these different characters are realizing, like Wendy realizes that she's not quite the nice person she thought she was and starts to question her own motivation. I think it's just brilliant. Yeah, I was blown away. I did not want to stop reading, which was a problem because I had to go to work (laughs) and and finish it one day after school. I had like 50 pages left. It was so painful. Anyway, I absolutely loved it. I think it's just brilliant. Yeah, and I wanted to mention that I listened to the audio and it is a full cast. And because of the different genres, the podcasts sound just like an NPR podcast. And the, the voices that they use and the segues and the music, I mean, all of that. So if you are someone who enjoys full cast audio, this one is really well done and it works so nicely. I was reluctant to listen to the audio because I was like with our book club to actually have read the print copy. And, but then I started, just, I was like, oh, I, I had access. And so I was like, I'll just start a little bit. And then it was so good with the full cast that I just stuck with it. And it was amazing. Oh, that's good to know. I will probably be rereading this one for our book club chat. So yeah, I might do it on audio this next time. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, let's each share one specific thing that worked for us. Oh, there are so many. I should have thought about (laughs) what I want to narrow it down to. I think one thing that I will choose to focus on is, Jen, I think you were kind of touching on this with the layers with Maddie and how with Carrie, we got a really good look at someone who's isolated, at what bullying can do to a person. And here, I think part of what I found so impactful was seeing the intersection of so many different things for Maddie. And so she is isolated. She is abused. She only has one caretaker who is her whole world. And we do find out in the book, you know, as it unfolds, we discover, because part of it, I was like, how did they not know more about her? But she didn't go to school until social services got involved. So she was in like seventh grade or something. So for a long, long, long time, she was, it was just her and her father who was abusive to her in many ways. And then, you know, she goes to school and immediately they ha- we have the water balloon incident that happens almost instantly. And we see that at that moment, she becomes the target of bullying and that bullying never ceases. And then, of course, only intensifies when they find out that she's biracial, which she had hidden. But as we said in the summer, you know, it's very clear that she just did what her abusive father forced her to do. She didn't know her mother anyway. So she had no there. You know, this is a great example of where the child has no choice except to act out what the parent imposes upon them. And, So I just thought all of that, the layering of all those different things and how that culminates in this moment, and then how we see Maddie realize that she is not powerless and that she can take action, I thought was just really remarkable. And then, like you said, Jen, I think that it's a really empathetic portrayal of her. And even though in the end, 
we could see her wreak havoc on other people and kill people. I mean, destroy people's lives, kill people. I felt, even in those moments, that she, I felt a sense of justification. I mean, that she could burn it all down. That when those things were happening to Kenny, I mean, I thought, isn't that exactly what we want to do in the face of horrific crimes that should never happen? Isn't that what we want to do is to seek justice for things that never should have occurred. And so I felt like all of that was really powerful, too, because there was this moment as I was reading where I thought all along we know we have this impending sense of doom. And we know from the get go that this horrific event is coming and that she is at the epicenter of it. We know that. And so I kept thinking, how are we going to not see her as the bad, you know, the bad guy here? Like, how are we not going to see her as the villain? And then when things played out with the police the way that they did and everything happened to Kenny, I thought, yes, that we can still side with her. And I thought that was remarkable for an author to construct this such a complex set of circumstances that lead to this moment and this inevitable outcome that, again, she's moving us toward the whole time, but we're also feeling that dread of it coming because we know from the get-go that we're in the aftermath. And I thought all that was just so well done. Because, of course, I think anyone who knows anything about Carrie, and if you have not read Carrie, maybe fast forward like 30 seconds, but knows that at the end... There, she stands up on the stage at prom and there's a bucket of pig's blood that's dumped on her head. And so I was just waiting for the parallel event because I knew it was coming. And in Carrie, when Carrie acts out, it is because of that. It is because of what is done to her. And so I love that additional step of, yes, Maddie is ready to do something after that happens to her. But it is what happens to Kenny, to Kendrick, that spurs her on to that you know, the complete destruction. I thought that was really smart because Maddie is such a sweet character. She does really try to give people multiple chances. She tries to be hopeful. She tries to have faith that others will treat her better in the way that any human being deserves to be treated. And again and again, she's proven wrong that you know, that yeah, there are people who are really kind to her. You know, she has teachers who are kind. Kendrick is kind. Even Kendrick's sister is kind to her, though she has some problems with the way Maddie's treated. And yet, after all of these things she's done, Jules still is cruel to her. You know, Wendy is not as cruel, but Wendy makes plenty of mistakes. You, you just see the casual cruelty of all these people who don't consider her to be a person. Yeah. I think it's yeah. Yeah. so smart. Yes. And also thinking about Wendy, I mean, I thought all of that, you kind of touched on that before, but her character and how what she worships is so wrong. And how when Kenny would say to her, you're not Jules, and she completely misunderstood yeah. what he meant, just showed how entrenched a lot of this social structure is that she couldn't even see that he meant that as a compliment and not not as an insult because, again, Jules is the pinnacle of everything she wants to be. And yet for all of us as readers, Jules is for sure oh the gosh. villain. I mean, yes. you know, there, there She's are... She's almost a caricature there, of a villain. <laughs> not quite, yes. but almost. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And so I think, you know, there are, we see the systemic aspects as well, but she very much is a wretched person in it through and through. And so I did think that that, I mean, wretched and pathetic. I mean, I thought that whole part, even in the end where we see her after and she talks about how she learned to play dead. And that was how, I mean, that even in there, she had no remorse. She had no understanding. She had not changed at all. I think so many other characters have evolutions and moments of redemption and not her. I mean, through and through, she's just terrible. And yet, Wendy, her fault largely is that she longs to be Jules and can't understand why that is such a problem. And so, yeah, I just thought all that was just so well done. I mean, the characters and the development of them in this is phenomenal. And then the the I think that the way that the story is woven together also mm-hmm. was just so richly done. Yeah, I mean, that's actually my pick is I think that multi-genre format and the shifting. We see so many people's perspectives and some less than others, but it all serves to create this rich tapestry where we understand the mindsets of so many different facets of the town. So, you know, we see the sheriff who... So one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that up until 2014, this town has had a segregated prom, which is both unbelievable and believable the way that it it came about. I think... You're like, okay. And so, you know, we see at one point the sheriff just waiting for this to be over and things to go back the way they were when everything was peaceful and everybody kind of knew their place and then there wasn't any conflict. And which, of course, is so misguided. And yet his perspective, I found him to be a believable character. I think the podcast hosts who are trying to put together this story and then find themselves feeling so differently about the story. You know, originally they're setting out to be like, what actually happened here? But they get drawn into the people. And it's not just a mystery anymore. It's this really sad story of a girl who was abused by her family, by the community. Everywhere she turned almost, she was facing abuse. I I just think the multi-genre... You know, they have some sections from a book that was supposedly published. They have the newspaper articles. When some of these racist events come to light, those little news reports, it it just is so effective. Again, I think the consideration of how media functions and how you know what's true and what's, what's biased and unbiased and it's just so intricate. I can't even imagine putting this together. I feel like Tiffany D. Jackson's timeline must have been like stretching across the room to make sure everything lined up well because it was so intricate. But yeah, it really worked to make it feel as true as I think a lot of it is. The truth in the center of the story, the telekinesis is an add-on, but the truth at the center of the story, I think is undeniable. Yes, and I felt like, even that was really fascinating, how there were the experts who came on. And I loved the touch of where the one guy is like, you know, telekinesis came from Stephen King, but of course it's a real thing. You know, so it was like this like idea that there are these mystical parts of the world and that they might have been told about in fiction, but they're real. And, and it, you know, and again, there there are people who believe that, mm-hmm. right? And certainly in, in the face of something like this that has like these out-of-this-world circumstances, what is the logical explanation? And so, like you said, I loved that about the podcast, that 
in a lot of ways. I loved that discussion at the end. I think I think you might have that for your quote, Jen, about, uh, I saw that when I was looking at the document, just that I love how the whole time it was called Maddie Did It, and it was this focus on her, but really what it's about is the town, you know, and is it is the all the systemic aspects of it that made this happen and let it happen and led to this inevitable moment. And I just thought all of that worked so well. And I mean, I loved going back to her being empathetic. I mean, I loved everything with Kendrick. I loved every bit of that. I I was here for all of that. I was just swept up in it. I mean, I was like, I totally get how that could happen. I felt I felt like it was believable that he would suddenly discover that this person, again, like you said in the beginning, Jen, this person that they thought they knew is so much more and different than what he thought and how fascinating that is to him and how he would get swept yeah, up in that. Well, and how that makes him see himself differently. Yes. Which was so great absolutely. because he's so used to being seen only for this one element of himself and she sees him as a whole person because she doesn't know about football or him as a football star or yeah so she just sees him for being this guy who's nice to her and who's quirky and has you know interest outside of football yeah I loved all of that yeah all right well let's move on so we each will pick one quotation. I will say I use like a whole ton of book darts on this book. So this was really difficult, <laughs> but we will each choose one quote to discuss. What's yours, Ashley? So I chose a really short but powerful one that comes up several times. And it first happens when Kendrick's mom is talking about the integrated prom. And his dad is like, it's too late in the year. Who cares? Like, let's just leave. I mean, again, it goes back to the idea that, like you said, Jen, I mean, it's implausible, but it's also sadly believable, particularly in the context that it's presented, you know, as it comes to pass, like people are like, how could that, you know, in all the news clippings and stuff, it's like, how could that still be happening? But then they start to explain how these two locations got established. Mm -hmm. And so then it became a routine to have them in the two places. And so all of a sudden you're in 2014 And this thing is still happening. And so, you know, they're having the discussion at his house about it. And the dad's like, let's just leave it alone. And his mom says, it ain't never too late to do the right thing. And I felt like that idea is such an important part of Jackson's book. Mm -hmm. And I felt like we see it with Wendy. We see it with the choices that Kendrick makes. We see it with the choices that Maddie makes. You know, there's this this moment where it's like each of them has this opportunity to do the right thing. Even with Maddie's father, that is a really complex scene where he feels like he needs to kill her because she is... Oh, and I thought, oh, that was fascinating. Yes. Sorry to be on a side here, but oh my gosh, I loved that twist, and I thought it was so brilliant. Yep. All along, we think it's her mom, uh-huh. and I was all in on that. I, was I, too. I believed every bit of that <laughs> because because we were made to believe it, and it seemed, you know, you have the journal and stuff. So anyway, I was I was all in that like that. Not that the power was bad, but that the power came from the uh-huh. mom, and so I just thought all that was so great that like it actually was his mother. He was also abused and suffered and that was part of why he was so traumatized but also like is this idea that in this really twisted way he was trying to do the right thing and of course totally misguided everything he did was horrific 
But I just thought, again, those layers. Yes. Of just like, oh my gosh, like, whoa, that's what was going on. Um, but I think in that moment, you know, she tries so hard to spare him. And I thought like that, you know, she keeps over and over again, she keeps trying to do the right mm-hmm. thing. And, and with Miss Morgan, we see it where she tries to spare her. Yep. And yet, you know, she's kind of in this collateral damage state. And a lot of the things that happen, I felt like were also this commentary on when these horrific things happen, there is a lot of collateral damage. And that means, you know, good people get caught up in these horrible things. And, you know, what can we do once we get to this inevitable moment? But anyway, I just, I loved that. I think that that is an important message in the book. And I felt like it came up several different times, but I liked that amid what I think is really despairing in a lot of ways, just like the way the town is, the systemic parts of it, the circumstances. I think a lot of us are grappling with those issues in America, and it is heavy and hard, but I felt like that is a grounding idea Mm -hmm. that comes up in it over and over again, that we we do have individual choices. We do get to make a choice, and it's never too late to make the right choice. I thought that was really good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I I think, too, I was just thinking of these little moments where the casual choices are made so important. And so there were so many places, too, where someone had a chance to make the right choice. Like I'm thinking of the sheriff when he notices the one police officer being aggressive. He should have just sent him home. Yeah. And instead, he's like, oh, you better not do anything bad. And then goes home because he's tired and he wants it's the end of his day and he wants to go home. So it's just this casual thing. It's not evil. But it is, okay, you needed to do, you needed to be the one to take the moment to do the right thing instead of just, you know, shrugging your shoulders. It yes. become, right. It becomes this, like, I thought, felt like there was a lot of commentary. I think we see that with those minor characters of Charlotte and Chris, where there were several times that you could tell, I mean, Charlotte's pretty wretched, but you could tell there were several times. There were moments, though, that she actually seemed like maybe she could step outside of some of that. And then with Chris, I did feel like there were times that we could see that he could see that what was yes. happening was wrong. But then there's that moment where he's like, we got to get out of here because everyone's going to blame us. And this idea that they had to flee. And I thought how powerful that commentary was because they are to blame. I mean, it was that it right. was that idea where, like, yes, they're bystanders, but also they were complicit. You had all of these opportunities to stop it. Yes, and yeah. you did nothing. And same with the police officer. I felt like we, like you said before, I mean, I thought he was well-drawn. For such a mm-hmm. minor character, I felt like we could really see that he is from a small town. He can't really imagine that anything horrible is going to happen. I mean, it's, like, yeah. outside the realm of what he sees in the world. And so that's why he's not more ignited by needing to do right. something. And yet, because of that simple passivity, everything horrific that happens happens because he made the wrong choice at that moment. Right. Well, even Wendy, right? Very early on, after the rainstorm hits and Maddie's hair gets so big and she's sitting in the classroom and they start, Jules starts throwing the pencils at her hair. And Wendy, you know, chuckles and thinks it's mean, but doesn't really do anything. And then later when she sees that on the news... And she thinks we weren't that, it wasn't that bad. I forget if it's, we weren't that mean or it wasn't that bad, was it? And it's just seeing that as an action, a little removed from herself gives her that perspective of how bad it was. And yet in the moment, she didn't see it as that big a deal. It was just a thing, you know, we'll wait till the class is over and then we'll move on. And Maddie isn't technically being hurt by this. 
yeah, she's just so easy. E- it's so easy to excuse that behavior. All right. Sorry, that was a long ramble. So I'll, I'll do my quotation now. <laughs> What's your so quote, this, Jen? Is, this is from Tanya, who is one of the podcast hosts. And she says, what you unconsciously left out is how societal racism played a large role in the incident, which as a white man would be rather typical. Even if we took race off the table, identity would still be at play. Because if she had been who she was meant to be from the start, if she'd been allowed to just be herself, in fact, if everyone involved was allowed to be their true, authentic selves without fear of recourse or ridicule, none of this would have ever happened. And again, you you talked about this a little bit, but I just think race is, of course, central to this book, but it's not just about race. It is about identity and about the truth of your identity and people accepting you for that truth. And we see that with Kendrick. We see that with Wendy. I guess, I don't know that we see that with Jules. I was going to try to make it work for Jules. I don't know (laughs) that it works for Jules. But for so many of these characters, that is absolutely true, that being forced to fit into a mold that is not truthful has consequences, not always as extreme as what we see with Maddie, but certainly has consequences. So I thought that was so powerful. I love Tanya. I love her contributions to the podcast were so smart. I felt like I marked a ton of her quotations. Yes, I thought her role was really fascinating. And that was an interesting listen. When she's talking on the podcast, you hear her accent that is not an American accent. And so I thought that was really fascinating also because a lot of these issues are cultural issues, and they're coming from the specific U.S. culture that then brings to light these horrific circumstances that, again, are entrenched in these systemic racist practices. And I thought what you were saying about, even with Jules, I agree that she, it's not about being her authentic self, but if the other people, Wendy and Kendrick and Maddie were being their true authentic selves in a more genuine way, Mm. she would be checked. Her power would not be so effective. But she, I mean, her hatred and her just endless power. I mean, it's this idea that she can never be touched. And that has to do with class. That has to do with race. You know, so there's just so much going into that, that no one is making her out to be the horrible person she is, which is only making her that much more horrible, and preventing her from having to take a critical look at herself and make some changes. And so I felt like there was a lot of that too about like what is what is tolerated, what is permit you know, permitted that should have been prevented. And it goes back to all what you said before, Jen, about all the tiny little decisions. There are so many times that if someone had I mean, the things she does in there, I did think I mean about plausibility. I mean, I was like, surely she would be expelled. Surely I mean, some of the things that happened, I had to believe that they would have reacted differently. But then I was like, maybe not, right? I mean, it's not outside the realm, again, when we see the larger context of the town, that maybe she could have gotten away with all that, particularly knowing how powerful her father is. Right. Again, class is also in play. And a lot of that, there's a lot of commentary about Wendy with the classism and how so much of her choices, both on a conscious and on a subconscious level, have to do with this need to to have security that she does not have amid a community where a lot of people have this financial security that she cannot achieve. And so well, and she's beholden to Jules who gives her a lot of things. Yes, right. The idea that she can't walk away because Right, there's definitely this power play there as well. 
And again, I don't think we felt sorry for her, but I do no. feel like it goes back to these layers of what is the community like and what is the society mm-hmm. like. And that's what, I mean, that whole part, Jen, I know we touched on that a little bit earlier, but, you know, we're basically the fact that they were so focused on Maddie did it was missing the whole point. And that's why that quote right. we picked is so powerful because it is this idea of like, she might have been the match, you know, but somebody else lit the flame. And it's that right. like feeling that it was all these things that all these people did that led to this moment that again felt inevitable. It felt like without changes occurring, there was nothing that could happen that would prevent this from occurring. And I I just felt like all that was really powerful. So well done. Mm. Oh my goodness. Doesn't this just make this makes me want to go pick up every single one of Tiffany D. Jackson's books that I have not read. I know. I want to read her backlist too. I mean, I was just like, man, I mean, just so much to think about, but also like a great read. And I think it's hard to do that where it's both a really enjoyable reading experience that doesn't feel like I'm like, <laughs> it makes me sound lazy as a reader, but like that I don't have to like work really hard to read, yeah. but also it has like so much depth and so much to think about. I mean, I just found myself coming back to those characters and like thinking about everything that's going on over and over again. And man, that is, that is really great storytelling. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are doing something a little different since we don't have an official Spooky Reads episode this month. We are doing spooky story recommendations, not necessarily pairings. So more the feel of the book than pairing. So Ashley, what spooky book are you recommending? Yeah, I felt like there are a lot of great pairings for this one. So maybe we'll do it, we'll do a bookish fave or something to come back to that because there's a lot of great pairings that I think touch on some of the same issues, but I could not think of any that lined up well, but were also in the like spooky or horror arena specifically. So I wanted to go with one I've read recently that I really loved. And this is RJ Jacobs, Always the First to Die. This is set in the Keys And it is amid a hurricane and it moves between two different timelines. And so it is a mom whose daughter is down with their essentially estranged grandfather. So her, the daughter's father's father, right? Her paternal grandfather, who we can tell in the beginning that the mom has a a very strained relationship with. The mom thought that the daughter was on this field trip with the class and her teenage daughter, she's 17, I think. And so she thinks she's on this field trip. But in fact, the daughter has gone down to the Keys to be with the grandfather. And then this horrible hurricane hits. And so a lot of the stories, the unspooling of what leads to the strained relationship. And what we come to find out is that the father is presumed dead. He's been missing for about a year. And both of course both of them are of course grieving over that. But also and so and so is the grandfather. All of them have been really impacted by this. So his boat was recovered. They never found him. Well, a lot of time has passed. So, you know, the mom is trying to say, he died. We have got to move forward. And her daughter continues to hope that he's alive and is just missing. And so that we find out about that part. But then as the story starts to unpack, the other timeline in the story is when the mom and dad first meet. 
And it is on the setting of a horror movie that's being filmed by the grandfather. And so the granddad lives in the Keys in this, like, old hotel that was the setting of the movie. And during the time, the movie was called Breathless, and during the time that Breathless was being filmed, all these horrific things kept happening. And so crew members were quitting left and right, and ultimately the mom, unexpectedly, because she was supposed to just be an extra, she lived down at the Keys, and was supposed to be an extra on this, like, beach scene, but unexpectedly she winds up being one of the leads in the movie. That's how she gets to know Cam, the dad. And so, you know, they their relationship develops. He and his dad have a very complicated relationship. His dad is, so the grandfather, is the kind of person who will do whatever it takes to make the scene. And so that's why his films have been well-received, but people hate working for him because he will do, a lot of, a lot of it is like he would do things purposefully to to scare someone so that the fear was authentic and so he would do these horrific things to the actors in order to get like the real effect instead of them just acting and so he has these kind of extreme techniques that he's using in the filming all these bad things go down the film does get released but ultimately someone dies in real life As you might imagine, it leaves a bad legacy, but also it made the film really successful in part because of all these, like, horrific things that happened that then drummed up people's interest in this horror film. The grandfather has decided he's going to do a sequel. So it's been all this time later. He's going to fund it himself. He's going to set it in the same hotel. And that's why the daughter, the granddaughter, right? So, you know, that's why she goes down there is because she has a chance to be in the film. The mom, of course, does not want her to do it for all these reasons. The daughter's like, this is my chance. And she has this, like, really strong desire to go figure out what happened to her dad, who had been down there at the time that he disappeared. All this stuff is unpacking. And then the other thing that happened is that the dad, Cam, was writing kind of a, like, how-to guide of how to survive a horror movie situation, right? So there's, like, all these tropes throughout the whole thing that both happened in the film— you're seeing all these tropes. But then when she's going down in the middle of the hurricane and all the cells are out and all that stuff, like, it's all the same things, right? And in in each time, you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you need to turn around. Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, so, so, like, I loved that because I felt like there was a lot of playing with those tropes, but also showing how, again, it's a mom trying to get her daughter out of a situation that, like, you can see as the reader why the mom is still going to go for it and that it doesn't matter the cost. I mean, I just felt like it was really richly woven. I mean, I just thought it was great. So oh, that's awesome. That's RJ Jacobs, always the first to die. And I thought it was awesome. I'm definitely going to read that one. <laughs> it sounds so good. All right. Well, my description is going to have to be much shorter because I was trying to even think of how to explain this book and it it's going to be really hard not to be spoilery, but I am recommending Farida Abike Amide's Ace of Spades. So I've been thinking a lot about Jordan Peele because my husband and I recently watched Nope, which made me think back to his first movie, Get Out. And I will just say Ace of Spades is like the YA version of Get Out. Not exactly, 
And that may be even too much of a spoiler there. It's so hard to talk about this book because when I was reading it, it's kind of disorienting and I wasn't sure what genre it was for the longest time. And that is part of the process. But Ace of Spades is set in this very exclusive private school called Navias Private Academy. And most of the people who go there are extremely wealthy and extremely privileged and extremely white. And actually, this one could very much work as a as a pairing for The Weight of Blood, actually. I was thinking that. I think this is a good pairing. Yeah. So it focuses on two characters. One is Devon. And he, his family does not have a lot of money. And so he really feels, he's a, feels like he's an outsider for multiple reasons, but one of them is definitely because of his family's social class. And then the other character is Chiamaka and she is, has been coveting this position as head girl since she entered the school. And this is a position of real power. It puts you at the top of the list for college applications. And so this has been something that she has not been afraid to push down some other people to push herself up, basically. And I don't know how much more I can say, which feels absolutely ridiculous, but it really is just from the moment the plot starts twisting which is pretty early on, it doesn't stop. So at first I was just like, I, I'm not sure what I'm reading. It was kind of this uncomfortable feeling. And then it's just a joy because you're just like, oh, this is totally intentional. I am feeling this way because the author wants me to feel this way. And yeah, so you just kind of have to be along for the ride, which is all over the place in the best possible way. So I don't know. You read this one too, right, yes, Ashley? Yes, yes. Should I say anything else? I kind of feel like I have to stop. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a good description. And I, it's in like the dark academics genre also. So I think it is definitely a thriller. I think you're right. That's a great pairing for The Weight of Blood. And it is set in that like dark underbelly world. And I think it, it works really well. Yes. Yeah. So I, hopefully that was an intriguing synopsis and you will pick this up if you haven't. So that is Farida Abike Amide's Ace of Spades. All right. Well, we are going to end with our bookish hearts. How many bookish hearts will you give The Weight of Blood? Definitely five. I feel like they should be like bleeding hearts or something, but yes. <laughs> but definitely yes. five. What about you, Jen? I agree. Yeah, absolutely. It, that was an easy five for me. I just... I was just blown away. And I'll just say, sorry, I'm going to say one more thing. I think to do a retelling so well is really hard because in some ways it hues so closely to the original and in others, it is a true retelling. And that is just masterfully done. I love her tribute to Stephen King. And she mentions him in the acknowledgements too, just as an inspiration, which as a Stephen King fan, I really love. Yes. Oh my gosh. I... And this is not my normal genre, as routine listeners know. Like, I just don't normally. And I mean, I think, again, that speaks to how great it is that I just thought it was absolutely phenomenal. And it takes a lot in this arena, I think, for me to... It takes more than a genre that I read more frequently for me to, like, really love it. But All right. Well, we are going to close out with our very October-appropriate Give Me One. And that is Give Me One Positional on Candy Corn. Ashley, how do you feel about candy corn? I'm decidedly no on candy corn. 
<laughs> I have been hearing this opinion so often, and I really like candy corn. And I don't even think it's the taste so much as, okay, there's a nostalgia factor. <laughs> there's something so satisfying of biting it off a section at a time. Mm. I feel like this is probably like a personality <laughs> test <laughs> about me. But there's something really satisfying about eating the little white tip, and then, you know, there's the little yellow part, and then the orange part. Anyway, I really like candy corn. Well, there you go. I. It was funny because before we recorded... Jen had several listed here, and we did not discuss this, but I felt strongly that I had an opinion, and I didn't know I had an opinion until she listed on the paper, and I was like, ooh, definitely no. I mean, I, like, hate it. I'm, like, grossed out that I used to eat yeah. it. It's really gross. I don't know. So I, I've been hearing some conversations, and I did not realize it was something people had a strong opinion about until I heard some people talking really, really passionately against candy corn, and I was like, but I like it. Anyway. Yes. I, I do think a lot of people so, yeah. like it because mm-hmm. it is in every store right about now. So, yeah. and those little pumpkins, you like the little pumpkins also? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I the mean, same, they don't have right? the satisfying section eating, but yeah. I mean, it's like hardened sugar, so I probably shouldn't like it. I mean, I'm not sitting eating like handfuls at a time, but I really like, yeah, anyway. All there right, well, we, will, we would love to know your opinion about candy corn, because I bet you have one, and you may not have even known that you had one. There but. you go. <laughs> well, we would love to know your thoughts also, of course, about Tiffany D. Jackson's The Weight of Blood. And if you have any spooky reads you would recommend, you can reach out at Unabridged Pod. Thanks so much for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnabridgedPod or on the web at UnabridgedPod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.